0: Hello, and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Dave Dane, who is the Director of Accessibility for Windows and Devices at Microsoft. There's no Deborah today, unfortunately, because we're slightly off schedule due to a major Internet outage in Canada last week. Dave was unable to join us, so no Deborah today, but you've got me and Antonio and Dave. So, Dave, welcome to Access Chat. Delighted to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to spend time with all of you.
0: Right. So, so, Dave, we were talking before we started, and, and, and um, you said that this is your first job in accessibility. Um, and, and so, to sort of tell us about your journey um, and, and your, your career and how you came to end up working in, in accessibility and what's a pretty senior and responsible role at Microsoft.
1: Well, it's funny because um, w- when I was born in 1971, my parents were told Dave may not live past 12. Dave may never be able to speak clearly, if at all. And even if he does, don't expect much because there's not much that somebody with Dave's disability cerebral palsy can do. And shock, well, not shockingly, I guess that was the sign of the times. They actually advised my parents to put me in an institution. Luckily, my parents didn't want to make that one single decision that would impact the rest of my life. And I couldn't have been born in any perfect era because I was born before rights for a disability existed and before this thing called technology existed. If I would have been born in any other previous generation, sadly, I might not be in front of you today. And my parents came from very humble means. They didn't have all the answers, but they knew what struggle was. So they fought hard to get me into the school board. And I got into regular school and I had that blue collar mentality uh, growing up. And when I graduated high school and thought about what do I want to do at university? I was really good in business and I was really good in technology. But I was confused. I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'll take a year off. And my dad walked down the stairs and said, Dave, let's be honest, with you being in a wheelchair, you're not going to be a fireman, police officer, or a construction worker. But you know what else you're not going to be? Living under my roof for free the rest of your life. So you better figure it out. So I went to school for technology because. What I always loved about technology is I could build a world that was more accessible, that didn't exist. And so I graduated with technology, and I went back. And as I was working, I went to school for business. I ended up in business and technology. For my first few years, I was a software engineer. And I realized I was more interested in the why and the what and not the how. So I moved into product management where I led a lot of products to market, really helped change organizations from being waterfall to more agile development. And I really became that change agent that was able to come in and lead change in major organizations. Fast forward 30 years when I turned 50, I made vice president at a major Canadian bank which at the time I was the first person with a physical disability to ever break that glass ceiling. And I'm like, okay, now what, right? I'm at 50, we're during COVID, where you really start evaluating your life and what do you want to do? And this opportunity at Microsoft came and I'm like, do I want to go into accessibility? Because beyond my lived experience and building accessibility into a product, I never focused on it on a major job. And like I was sharing with you earlier, I probably purposely avoided it because I thought, how convenient would it be to have a guy in a wheelchair shoot off about accessibility? But my wife kind of gave me the right framing. She's like, if you do anything else in your career, sure, you're gonna make companies a lot of money and be successful. But if you go to Microsoft, you have the opportunity to help others like you have the life you did, but hopefully with a lot less effort and struggle because I was the canary in the in the in the mind through many organizations. How they had to learn about it wasn't just onboarding me as an individual contributor, but how do you stay with me through my career and make it inclusive and accessible as I go into managing teams? Policies like travel and all those things. So at 50, to be able to come at Microsoft, because remember, technology has given me the platform to have the life I did. And ironically, Microsoft products were the ones that helped me get there. So it was almost coming back full circle to really work with an organization that was really focused on enabling everyone on the planet of all abilities to achieve more. And uh, for the later stage of my career, I couldn't think of anything more rewarding
0: to do. Excellent. Thank you. So, um, and and I have to say that to this day, one of the um, most important technologies in my life that is most assistive is actually Outlook. <laughs> um, yeah because of the the organizational capacities within it to 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 sort of help me manage my my workload my day my reminders my ADHD my dyslexia etc you know so you know I've lived in the Microsoft ecosystem and 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 so what seemed like mundane tools you know the the word processing the spell checking the the stuff that people accept as being sort of now commonplace Actually, were transformative for me, enabling me to perform better, um, and and um, keep a job, have a career, all of the rest of those things. So, so now that you are, you know, are you know, uh, doing accessibility, what are sort of some of the things that you're doing, you know, in Windows, right? For example, I know that there's sort of there's a big uh, you know, push uh, on accessibility features in in Windows and M three six five. What are what are the sort of things that sort of are making you excited that that you think have great potential for for example, sort of key areas that you are sort of focusing on right now?
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that when I was I got asked by um from my last visit in Redmond, they're like, what has been the most Transformable assistive technology that you've had. And I thought about it, and I'm like, it's cut, copy, paste. That to me has been the best assistive technology ever created on this earth. Because think about it it's low value work, but high effort to repeat and correct things. Those simple things to me. And I think I'm not alone, I think everybody owes their career to cut copy paste as you've had longevity and moving across organizations to reuse things. And it's funny, right? You look at it and go, wow, that's very rudimentarily simple. But any assistive technology that helps solve the low-value, high-effort work makes it better for everybody, which is great. And I sit more on the device side than I do Windows, but we have to work closely together because how can you put it on the device if you're not going to light it up through Windows and do things? I think the technologies that are really exciting me is AI, right? AI is really helping think of ways to really simplify that high-effort stuff to automatically predict what is needed and make those low-value, high-effort things more seamless, right? And if you look at AI, and especially in devices, disability is complex, right? It would be disability is a one-solution-fits-all, but we always talk about accessibility, but accessibility is the solution, Disability is the opportunity. And the way I know we look at it is, how do we offer flexibility to challenge that complexity of disability? And I'm sure you've seen at the recent, um, our recent uh, accessibility conference at Microsoft, we introduced the Microsoft Adaptive Accessories. And what excites me about that is, the flexibility it has to solve a lot of those you know, low-value, high-effort things, whether it's coming up with a switch to do multiple keystrokes, whether it's a mouse that you can use right-handed, left-handed, and taking advantage of 3D printing. So where the accessory has to stop to be applicable for many, now we're adding that 3D modeling that closes the gap between between mass production of hardware and the customization that users need to have. And that's what really excites me. Like, we're not the first to come up with switches and adaptive mouses, but the ability to put it in a very easy product. And what we don't talk a lot about is the portability of it. I travel between Canada and Redmond Now I can bring my assistive technology with me. It works from all spectrum of disability from very mild to very extreme. And I can even see people without disabilities use it as a productivity enhancement because nobody can do multiple keystrokes all the time. At least that's what I tell myself.
0: So... um... I, yes, I have absolutely have seen the, the, the adaptive you know, accessories. and one of the things that, that sort of makes me think on a really sort of positive basis is you know, that, that whole mass customization thing is becoming more commonplace. And, and, and that in itself is accessibility, because we all have different needs. and, and, and a lot of people don't consider themselves to be disabled but have needs that are unmet by standardized products. So, so by enabling customization, we're enabling inclusion. Um, so, so I think that it's, really, it's really great to see that. And, and, and I think that 3D printing also means that you're, you're making that availability wherever the, the printing is. What we now need to do is make sure that the printers get to the parts of the world that need it most.
2: Exactly. Uh, And uh, Dave, uh, once we we have a uh, a guest uh, uh, from 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 Colombia was some hack, uh, to hack accessibility to to make a cheap mouse. He was trying to find ways, find cheap ways to provide people a, a way to be able to use a computer how do you see this this technology, the, uh, uh, the potential to democratize uh, the access of people to, to, to devices uh, and make them widely spread? Because we know that uh, not everyone has, has access to the same technology that we have. So how can we make it, how can we democratize this to everyone?
1: that's a great great question what, what i like about it and it ties into what neil was saying, 3d printing is great it's not everywhere yet but if we look at the price of 3d printers they're going down 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 right and hopefully we get that at an even lower cost rate where 3d printers can make its way into latam and places that don't have that capability yet and You know, it's funny you bring that out, because what I think is, I would love to see, here's my vision for affordability and customization. I would love to see a world where 3D printers are within an hour of every person around the world, and we begin creating an open source community where we share these ideas for creating different devices in that where people can get it downloaded and easily share it and get it made locally close to where they're at. So then we can have an impact globally about getting that group share, like open share, like open source does for code, but in hardware design and hardware, but make it available to the local 3D printing as it becomes democratized and lower cost to get it. Because... You made up a good point. Until we can get the hardware accessible and affordable, it doesn't matter what we do in the software. The software can do the greatest things in the world. But if we don't have something as a special, simplified, economically available, accessible mouse or other devices, they can't interact with that software. The hardware is the entry to the software.
0: And, and, and you'll be pleased to know that, that the guy that Antonio was talking about, Felipe Betancourt, actually has been doing some of this work, distributing uh, blueprints for adaptive tech and stuff like that. And he's been working with a, a Swiss university. Uh, and this is a bit I really love because I, I, I frequently talk about how we should be treating uh, exclusion like pollution and using sort of the sustainability models to, to look at accessibility. And they're using, um, they're now using um, this, this printer spool, which is recycled plastics. So, so essentially awesome. now you're, you're, you've you got a library of assistive tech and, um, you know, free free to use blueprints. And they're also, you know, trying to do it in a sustainable way. So they're recycling plastics into inclusive things. So I think it's 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 a it's a great idea. Obviously, you know, to a large extent, it's an academic project rather than a a widely distributed thing. But something like that needs to go mainstream because I think it would make a, a huge difference. I think you know, you're also by putting the production closer to the person, you're 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 having real benefits in terms of um, you know. Reducing the carbon emissions, the transport costs, all of these kind of things that are really bad for the planet. and um, so, but I think to do that, you you do need also different models of doing business and different attitudes as well, because this requires trust. you know can you, to to have a a a sort of fab lab you know in every city that can make up you know trainers or you know, you know, Print ups, you know, surface devices or, you know, or, or things like that requires trust on the part of the, the people that own the IP that, that this stuff can be made to a sufficient quality and they're not going to lose their IP and they're not going to lose their profitability to do this stuff. So it, 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 it requires a fundamental change in, in sort of attitudes to business and a greater collaboration as well.
1: And some safety models, right? And, yeah. you know, like we do, like in, you know, now when we purchase something, if we're upset, man, you just look at the comments below and you look, the community helps self-govern some low quality and some improper issues. And I think, I think we got to start crowdsourcing, like have the right safety specs. Absolutely. We need trust, safety. But we also need to crowdsource the feedback and make it easily available where, hey, your reputation's online if this doesn't work right. So then putting the ownership on those, you know, 3D kind of pop-up stands to go, hey, here's the blueprints, but here's the quality of service that's expected from it.
2: So, um, Dave, I, I would like to introduce uh, 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 the topic of security and accessibility that often collide, at least in our enterprise world. Uh, you no, know, you, you mentioned to us that you have work in banking, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Bank, banking is, is a place that requires a lot of uh, security. It, it, it's, it's paramount. I'm sure that's also paramount now at Microsoft. How do you manage uh, these two weights in the balance. How we make sure that security doesn't limit access.
1: That that is probably um, probably the two that you come up with these amazing questions. Accessibility and security almost pull from the same thread, right? And that's that's the real challenge. And I think sometimes. And here, let me give a banking example because you brought that up. If we look at two-factor validation, if we look at two-factor validation, so if I log in, then I got to go on my device to see the code or to punch it in to do it. Now, the time it takes me to punch it in, get my phone, log in, launch the app, get the code, times me out. But I get the need for two-factor validation. What it should do is, bare minimally, warn me to say, hey, before you log in, make sure you have your device and banking app open and ready. So that way, when it comes up, you can punch the code in. It's It's not a beautiful, elaborate, technical solution, but it's a manual solution. So I think... When we have to do that trade-off in technology, and hopefully we get better where it's less of a competing threat, we need to use manual common sense of how do we prepare the user for this inconvenient way they're gonna need to authenticate to ensure we keep their security.
0: Yeah. So for quite some time, I was part of the Cognitive Accessibility Task Force. So, so things like uh, so for the, the W3C. So, the, you know, these kind of things like where people are being timed out and locked out of banking is, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a real barrier uh, for people. You know, maybe like me that are dyslexic or ADHD or people who have Alzheimer's or memory loss and you know lack of ability to focus or, or remember certain things. So there are elegant ways to 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 make this easier. I mean, if you're in the walled ecosystem of, of Apple, for example, one of the things that they do quite well is when you get that um, that code, it says, "Do you want to paste the code that's just come in in your um, in your text message?" Great, because I will transpose it wrong. Being, you know, because one of the things that with my dyslexia is I I get things in the wrong sequence so for me this is super useful because i mean there are real penalties to getting it wrong three times you know you can lock yourself out of your bank account it's not it's not like being locked out of work where you can phone the service desk and someone will let you back in and anyway you're not going to be in too much trouble if you're locked out of your bank account you're really in deep trouble so um so these things are these things are important and i think that that the other thing that has really helped that, you know, is biometrics. You know, the the ability to use biometrics to make two-factor authentication seamless um, is really important because essentially what we need to be doing is keeping stuff secure. And we understand there is a need to be secure, but finding ways to do it that don't impact the user and, and, and so that, you know, whether it be your thumbprint or your facial ID or or some, something else can take the burden of the, the exercise of authenticating away from the user and push it back into the background.
1: And that's what I love about Apple, that you can just click and do that, which is great. And so let's just pretend I was a Mac user for a long time before I joined Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And I love the simplicity of of dealing with those complex things. And it was funny. One of the things I got to discover my first week at Microsoft was, hello, right? That I could just look at my camera and log in. I'm like, that's awesome. You just see me how many keystrokes every time my machine goes into lock mode. If you would have asked me, Dave, do you want an accessibility option for logging in? I'm probably like, no, it's not that bad. But now that I got the camera and previously with my Apple, with my watch to unlock it, it just saves keystrokes, right? And, you know, we always talk about the, the magic and love of AI and all this amazing, sophisticated tech. But sometimes just making... The, the basic things you need to do very frequently dead simple that can impact your mood your life and ability to do that because I'm like you Neil I've locked myself out of the bank and like you heard about the big Canada outage last uh, Friday when you can't access your funds an anxiety level comes up right like I've gotten such a. I'm a creature comfort of having everything online, digitally, and everything. When everything goes down, you instantly forget how dependent you are on those things.
0: I I, I fully agree, and I think that um, there is a huge benefit to businesses at a wider scale, because this is a productivity benefit, for sure. You know, if you think about uh, organizations, and, you know, Microsoft is a big one, 100,000 employees. Atos, who Antonio and I work for, also really large, about 105,000 employees. If you're logging in multiple times a day and you're saving that 15 seconds across, you know, 100,000 people every day, you're talking about millions of dollars or euros or pounds worth of employee time that you're saving through doing this stuff. So, so it, yeah, it's accessible. It's a better user experience. It, it's freeing people's time up for more important things as well. I mean, going back to the, the, the thing that you mentioned, the, the, um, the outage and your dependence on things. We were, were again, riffing just before we came on air about assistive tech, and you know, a, you know, assistive tech being in the cloud and you know, moving backwards and forwards between you know the device and the cloud and data centers and mainframes. And we've all, all old enough to have been through multiple technology cycles. One of the things that, as a person that works with uh, parts of the world that don't have such good strong internet connections, is I've always been mindful of the fact that we need the technology to be robust and we need it to uh, work where there's no, no internet. So, obviously, the cloud has utility, big compute power has utility in solving big problems, but how do we get robust technology more to be on device? Because then you're not experiencing the problems of latency. You know, if you think about how speech recognition works and stuff like that, if there's a lag on your captions, you start you know, uh losing how to follow the conversation. So, you know, where do, do you do you think that we're going to get to a point fairly soon where, you know, on the device is going to be predominantly, you know, the the, the, the load of doing the assistive tech, the Cortanas, the text to speech, the whatever else we put on there will be done locally with you know, stuff offloaded to the cloud when it's available and when, you know, convenient.
1: If you look at the way the new chipsets are going, predominantly the ARM chipset, right, where it's bringing uh, a neural processor right on board to be able to process AI very well. It's funny how we are riffing before of how it switched from server to client to server to client. Why do we keep doing that? Why can't we just think about it differently and go, let's look at it in a hybrid way. How do we use central compute and the cloud for all the power of getting collective big data sets, intelligence, strong compute? But then where do we find the balance of that? How do we store the most common things customized to the user on the device? I see it as getting into a more of a hybrid mode as these chips like armor coming available to do that strong compute locally on all the stuff it can do locally and only interact with the cloud when it's time to update it. Maybe my maybe my usage is changing where I'm using other things more and I can automatically detect it to bring more of my more frequent things to the device. But I think we got to get smart about it and realize, you know what, they both have benefits. Why do we keep, you know, playing the tennis match of back and forth and find out how we can utilize these two together to optimize, you know, getting good global compute with the independence of local running? I think that would be great.
2: I think there's also there's a, uh, also an important financial case uh, 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 to to make it accessible. the cost of internet can be really high in, in many parts of the world. In uh, in many parts of the world, internet might not be widely spread. People might need to go to a specific location to have good internet access. And the fact that some of the data can be processed locally, it will give people independence. You know, they don't have to, okay, uh, now I need assistive tech. Now I could, I can turn my internet on. I can pay for it, but then, uh, I can't, I can't use the phone for anything else to access the internet because all uh, the data that I spend is just to keep me with, with my access to the assistive tech. And I don't think that is fair.
1: You brought up a good point, Antonio. As as somebody with a disability over the last three years, I've come accustomed to the trade-offs we're forced to make. Like when COVID first came, I usually have support workers that come in at the morning, shower me, shave me, dress me. And so when COVID hit, do I want to really... Do I have to really challenge my safety by having support workers, or do I have to give up my independence and ask my wife to do my care until we realize what we do? That's a hard trade-off between independence and safety. And last Friday when I chose the, you know, then there was another trade-off I made for my cable provider, internet provider. Do I wanna have the economic benefit of bundling all my services in one provider. Or now that I got to learn, I'm going to give up that uh, economic benefit to get resiliency to have my services shared across, too. How do we take away that burden from somebody with a disability and figure out the right hybrid way of reducing those dependencies? Probably not eliminating it, but let's not force the user with the disability. Do those trade offs because life is already doing it, their technology shouldn't. So, how do we think about ways of how to make today's innovations more accessible and resilient for all people around the world? So, I think we get excited and we stop when we think, Oh, we solved it, AI, web, great, but then We don't think about, well, what if they don't have internet? What if it's too expensive? What if it's spotty? We have to start continuing down the user path of what is the most extreme case of not having it versus having it and figuring out the solutions the best we can to cover that spectrum, to not let dependent technologies get in the way of using assistive technology.
0: That makes perfect sense, and I was given a really good example um, by a pal of ours, Gareth Ford Williams, who used to work for the BBC, and he said that that what happens in in Africa, BBC World Service, very popular in Africa, but bandwidth is poor, cost to use mobile internet is is prohibitive. Is that when in certain locations in Africa, someone says they you know clicks that they want to um, listen to a podcast or a radio show or whatever. What it does is it actually doesn't send data. It sends a small packet of data. And then it actually rings them back on a traditional phone call. So they make an outgoing phone call um, and, and push the show over the, the, over the traditional voice line. To the user so that the user is not having to pay exorbitant data fees so so what they're doing is they're they're they actually worked out you know a neat new technological solution to use older more robust infrastructure in a way that sort of doesn't financially exclude people so i i think that we ought to sometimes not be neophytes uh, and, and constantly chase after the new but look at how can we most elegantly solve a solution in the context of the society or or, or you know, country or, or, or workplace that that we find people in because they're all they're all different they're all going to have slightly different requirements
1: and i think we forget about the constraints right early on when i was an engineer we had like what maybe one mega RAM, and we had to deal with all those constraints we had that forced us to think about well-thought-out solutions. Now, technology is infinite, especially with the cloud, right? You need compute. That's just reach out, order more. I think we have to be mindful of environmental constraints, not just users, user segments. We talk about that all the time we gotta start thinking about geographical environmental constraints as we're thinking about rolling out this technology, because it goes beyond the user. The user might have all these needs, wants, and desires, but at the end of the day, they're restricted to their environmental constraints. So how do we solve for their needs and desires with being empathetic to those constraints? That makes perfect sense to me.
0: Unfortunately, pretty much time. So it's been fascinating talking with you, Dave. I'm really looking forward to you joining us on Twitter for for, for the chat.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a a real pleasure talking with you.
1: I've Uh, really enjoyed this talk. This has been awesome.
0: and, And to say thank you to my clear text for keeping us captioned and accessible.